I think what I, what I realized is that identity itself has been mangled and twisted and covered over. And it's one of the reasons why our nation um, has really kind of given up the project of trying to figure out who we are. And we're so future oriented, we're so future focused, and it's all about, well, get your stuff now. But we're getting stuff in a state that's unanchored. It's not tethered to, to, to actual truth, to land, to people, to stories that actually happened. Instead, it's all about dreaming forward, but in an untethered state, which, which becomes mostly about domination. In order to succeed, then you have to dominate the other. Yeah. That has become our story as a nation. When I turn on the news or the radio or shoot YouTube or Twitter or insert media form wherever you'd like to, I am bombarded with history. A lot of that history is edited highly. The textbooks are edited. Our church history is edited. Your history, your family history, the history that you put on Facebook and Twitter and the other social media is all highly edited. That's not a problem, right? I don't think it is. But it is important that we understand that it's edited. And it's important that somewhere we're willing to deal with the inconvenient truths of what that edit has done to the way that we see the world. In this week's episode, you'll hear Lisa Sharon Harper say something that has stayed with me. She called the church the arbiter of oppression. Now, I don't know if that's a word that you use frequently. It is not one that I use frequently. And in the midst of figuring out kind of what that word meant, I realized that it meant it was somebody that both endorses, perpetuates, and takes ownership by making it okay that something happens. Like the principal is the arbiter of everything that happens at the school. You're the arbiter of what happens in your life, hopefully, etc. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast, and I am Seth. And this week, Lisa Sharon Harper is on the show. She wrote a book called Fortune, and it took me much time to read through her book. Because a lot of the history in her book is the history of her family. It's the history of the state that I currently live in. And it was new history for me. It was history that both infuriated me. I felt unable to be angry in the right way. And I felt ashamed that I didn't know. And I think that's okay, but I just like to name that. And now that I do know, I tell people. You may get offended at some of the things said in this episode. You may not. Maybe this is new information. Maybe it's not. And so I hope that you enjoy just a little snippet of a conversation that Lisa and I had about her book, Fortune, which is really the story of her family's history and how that impacts her. The story of how the history of our church and our country impacted her family and how that impacts you and I today. Let's go. You don't look a thing like Jesus Christ to me. You look like self-righteous apathy. You look like entitlement and supremacy. You tread on the weak to defend the wealthy. You talk so casually of endless battles, factions, and schisms. Can't you see the casualties of your hyper-nationalism? Lisa Sharon Harper. Welcome yes. to the show. We finally made it work. Thank you for your flexibility Yay. with the scheduling. And also, I apologize for my inability to be flexible. Um, I referenced a minute ago that I work at a bank. We're in the middle of a merger. There's just a lot going on. So yes, apologies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But welcome. I'm glad you're here this morning. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, I'm actually really um, looking forward to this conversation. Good. Well, I don't, hopefully nobody's told you anything about me. It's better that way. Nothing to live up to. <laughs> so, um, well, good. So I always like to begin just with, with an understanding that maybe not everyone that is listening knows who you are. So just briefly, who and what are you? Who and what am I? <laughs> I'm a human being. Um, and I'm a human being whose who's alarm just went off. I'm sorry. 
um, telling me to be on this podcast. So. <laughs> Uh, no, I, uh, so my name is Lisa Sharon Harper. I am the president and founder of Freedom Road. Um, Freedom Road is a consulting group that specializes in shrinking the narrative gap between us. And we do that as our primary strategy for, for how to move justice forward in the world in ways that don't have to do two steps back and then to do one step forward mm. every 20 years, um, every generation. So we believe that part of the reason why we keep coming up to moments like 2016 when when America elected Donald Trump, I don't know how your how your listeners feel about him, but for me as an African American woman, um, the election of Donald Trump literally gave shivers. I mean, I got I got I froze on on election night when it was announced, and I felt like I had just seen. I felt like the permission to thrive had been drained from my body. Mm. Literally, that's yeah. how I felt that night. Um, so, but we don't have to come to that moment every 20 years, every generation. We can reconcile our, our narratives. And therefore, because we are all on the same page about how, who we are and how we got here, have a common vision for what it will look like to actually um, move America forward to becoming a greater and greater nation. Yeah. Um, so I, I am, I'm a speaker, a writer, a consultant, an activist. Um, my, at, um, in the time of Fleur Ferguson and Charlottesville, I was there on the front lines mm-hmm. pushing uh, for pushing the powers, um, the powers that be, whether they be the police or the alt-right, um, to, to abide by and honor the inherent dignity of all people. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I remember you being here. (laughs) Yeah. For those listening, I'm leaving the dog in. I'm not editing it out. And oh, that's great. Why not? And Dasher, if you would like to contribute, feel free. Um, Dasher's our smallest one. So her name is Babe. Babe. And she was a rescue dog. And uh, we've we've just finished her her training like a week ago. So she's doing pretty well right now. Babe is now in the show notes. Also a guest. (laughs) There we there we go. Um, Yeah, I remember you. So I actually live right outside of Charlottesville. I work in Charlottesville. Um, Oh wow. Um, which made reading a lot of the parts of your book that you're here to, to discuss a bit. Like I didn't grow up in Charlottesville. I grew up in Western Texas, but, um, but yeah, I remember you being at, where were you at? St. Paul's? Yeah. You were yeah, at St. Paul's. Paul's. Um, we were actually supposed to go over there and play with the kids. There's an outside water park um, down in the older sections of Charlottesville that's free to get into wow. on a hot day. And um, we did not go. Instead, we, we stayed at that home because I was like I'm not very hot day. I'm not going over yeah. there um yeah. yeah I remember the moment when we were told you know we were told if you go out in the street the police have said they can't protect you mm-hmm. and they won't protect you mm-hmm. so we don't know you have to know you're taking your life into your own hands yeah. you could die yeah and I remember sitting there literally sitting on the front pew at the church and asking God, what should I do? Because I knew my mom was going to be going into surgery. She was going to need my help. I was supposed to be the one helping her. And what if I die? Like that literally was what went through my head. And what I heard God say was be literally, I heard this like still small voice in my head mm-hmm. that said, be present, mm. be present and, um, and walk, walk forward. So I joined the 80 other faith leaders Yep. who locked arms and walked up to, um, to Emancipation Park. And uh, that day is history now. Yeah. Yeah. I've eaten lunch at that park. Um, I used, mm. That's where I started my banking career, was, was downtown wow. Charlottesville, right next to the courthouse, um, you know, a block away. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've never been, what's the word? Shamed isn't the word. I don't know mm. what the word is. I don't really have a word, but it's it's sad and, and still being here in Charlottesville it's it's still spoken about daily and is mm-hmm. equally still argued about daily mm-hmm. and I'll just stare at people and be like I don't what do you why are you even arguing about this what is really what wow. is wrong with you um anyway yeah. Yeah. not why you're here well although okay. you wrote about it <laughs> although you wrote about it briefly in the book but um yeah but yeah mm-hmm. so you wrote a book that that Lisa was very hard for me to read because my history knowledge of many of the things that you write about in this book is non-existent being that I was educated in Texas. Like a lot of the the, the laws that you write about in Maryland yep. and in Virginia. And then they're like, oh, but we wrote the law wrong. This isn't helpful. Let's rewrite it because 
you know, as a parent, I do that. We had a rule. Yeah. You didn't clean your room. New rule. Um, New rule. But, right, but exactly. th- this isn't parenting. So what is the book Fortune that you've wrote? Because I, how long did this take to write? Because this seems heartbreak like just reading your story and and that's not just your story it's a story of millions of people yeah it's gut-wrenching well well first of all thank you so much for the honor of reading it not everyone picks up a book and actually reads so I appreciate that Mm. and I wrote it um, because I really literally I felt called to write it I felt called to write it and it was a my family story took 30 years to research and I'm still researching mm-hmm. it. Genealogy is the kind of thing that literally never ends because there's just all these rabbit trails you can follow and, yeah. and questions. There's a million questions that, that come up. The more you find out, the more questions surface, right? So, but 30 years to research and about four years to write, two years to write the proposal and two years to write the book, which is very unusual for me because all my previous books only took about a month or two to mm. write. Um, so, so this was a real labor, a real labor of love. And the, the law that you're referring to that got changed was really one of the things that was like, whoa, mm-hmm. like it was kind of a game changer. When I, when, I, when I did that, first of all, we realized that my, my seven times great grandmother, Fortune McGee game or game McGee, depending on what you're reading, that she was a mixed race woman. And as a result, her body absorbed the trauma of those very first race laws in Maryland. And those laws were created in order to solve a problem on the ground as all laws are. I mean, I learned a lot just about lawmaking. I mean, I got a master's in human rights, but there was something about, about this process that made me realize, wow, like, okay. So the, the issue they were trying to solve on the ground in Maryland is different than Virginia and Virginia, where the very first race laws happened, they were trying to solve the problem of white um, masters or owners of enslaved people raping their enslaved women and then producing mixed race children. Mm-hmm. And by English law, because it was an English colony, British colony, um, the children of a British citizen could not be enslaved. And you traced British, British citizenship through the father. Yeah. So they, this is what you were talking about. Yeah. So they said, well, we'll just change where citizenship comes from. So the thing that blows my mind when I think about this is three separate sets of laws have traced their genesis to this law that passed in Virginia in 1662, citizenship laws, gender laws, and race laws. All three come from that very, that 1662 law, because it's the first time you have any law that has anything to do with gender, any law that, that, that identifies this is the group that will be able to be enslaved. And that was people, basically black people, people of African descent. And this is what citizenship means on this land. Yeah. So then two years later in Maryland, they passed a similar law, but the problem they were solving for was white women coming from England and marrying enslaved black men and having mixed race children. And of course the planters who were white men, so yeah. we can't have that. Yeah. So passed, they passed the law that ended up indenturing my ancestor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then even not to belabor that point, but then it's like in the middle of the book, they're like, yeah, but then if you have a baby, that baby's a, an indenture for 21 years, but this one, 30 years, but this one, I'm just going to make up years. Cause honestly, I got confused <laughs> seven years, nine years. We feel like it's yeah. Tuesday for 15 years. Let's just yeah. like, I literally could not, I started yeah. diagramming and then I just got confused and then realized yeah. it's, uh, it's anyway, it's not logical. Right. And what they, so the reason for that was because well, in some ways it is, right? You Basically, the logic was this. White men were starting to feel overrun by black bodies because Maryland started to have more and more and more people of African descent coming to be, well, being brought to be enslaved to that territory. And as they did, they started to feel threatened because, mm-hmm. well, you know, so they, they began to clamp down yeah. on this concept of race and more and more lost. So finally, like by the 1740s, 45, I mean, it is heinous. And there's a web of like 50 laws, 50 different provisions in these race laws where it only started with four, Yeah, you know, in 1664. Yeah. Yeah. At the very, very beginning, like literally in the introduction, um, you talk about a concept of re-membered versus dismembered. Yeah. What is that? Just for those yeah. that haven't read the book yet. 
Well, we think about memory, right? And I'm not the first person to, to think of, of memory in this way. Um, but memory is bringing members together, your memory together with, with what happened, like bringing it together. Well, in so many ways in America, we have dismembered our memory from ourselves. We have covered over history, what actually happened. We have twisted it. We have repressed it. So remembering ourselves is bringing ourselves back into right relationship with what happened. Um, and also with each other, it is, it is remembering our ancestors, going back and finding out their stories, being reconnected. It's really about connection, connection to memory, connection to our ancestors, connection to our history. Mm. I can't find the page because I, I read this mostly in traffic jams. How often do you come down to Charlottesville? Just infrequently? Uh, infrequently, but I've been there a few times over the last There is a years. stretch of the interstate that during the time change, um, the sun comes up and people forget that the sun comes up and, and they won't clean their windshield, I think is what happens. And so there's a accident on the interstate weekly, which I hope that no one is hurt outside of the cars. But it has given me a lot of time to read in my car. I just keep books in the car because I'm literally sitting there for 45 minutes doing absolutely oh nothing, just wow. I idling. Um, so I don't have my notes in front of me. But there is a section in here talking about race laws. And and the reason I ask that is, the reason I want to work this into the conversation is the, the name of the show is, you know, Can I Say This at Church? And there's a section in here where you you say, you know, a major role of the church, and I believe it's in Virginia at the time, yes. is to institute, be a part of, administer. Um, I believe it's a part where maybe it's Maryland or Virginia, like indentured slaves yes. were like owned by the con like the congregant body or the, maybe I'm saying it wrong, by but that is one of those things that people don't talk about at church. Oh yeah. They don't could talk you, about that at church. Could you please, um, and mm -hmm. maybe give a lot more context than my very disjointed memory of, of the sentence. Well, one of the reasons why why I wrote the book is because not only have we dismembered our memory, our national memory, but our church memory. And when we, when we have to understand our own complicity in the crafting of this construct called race, and one of the ways that the uh, principal way that the, that the church was a part of this um, design of the construct was it's actually kind of, kind of deep. In 1664, when Maryland passed its law, this happened in Maryland, by the way, it also happened in Virginia, but I know the Maryland history better. In 1664, when Maryland passed its law, what it said, the law was that white women who marry black men and have children by those black men who are enslaved shall become enslaved themselves by their husband's master until their husband's death. And their children will be enslaved in perpetuity forever. So it turned out between 1664 and 1670, that's only what, six years, the legislature looked up and realized, this Catholic legislature, by the way, looked up and said, uh, wait a minute, we're now seeing that, that um, planters are now forcing their Irish indentured servants to marry black men have children by them so that they can get all the free labor. Mm -hmm. So they were like, oh, this is an unintended consequence. We didn't mean to do this. We're going to take the power to decide who gets indentured and who gets enslaved out of the hands of the planter and put the keys, put the lock and key in the hands of the church. So the church then became the primary arbiter of who got enslaved and who got indentured. They kept all the court records. I mean, the most accurate court records will be found in church parishes. Mm -hmm. But the unfortunate, the unfortunate reality is that many of those church records are no longer in existence because of fires or moving. They, they weren't very good keepers of them, yeah. but they ended up being the arbiters of, of oppression yeah. in Maryland and also eventually also in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that as well. So my, um, my dad did his DNA ancestry tests a few years ago and he, and he passed away um, recently uh, last year of cancer. And, um, but I did a lot of his ancestry for him. And I remember one of the last trips I took to Texas, we went all the way through it, um, as far back as we could go. Um, and I learned a lot about my family that I didn't know because not everything is written down in a picture or in a note, but like it's a lot of these That's things right. are so, 
so passed down. And, um, you know, my grandmother on his side passed away when I was two. It's like, I have none of those stories. I'm, I'm totally relying on dad's recollection because my grandfather's yeah. also passed, you know, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it has caused me to continue to do the ancestry stuff. And, and one of the things that I have found is just how surprised I've been at some of my ancestors. As you worked through some of, of your family history and as you're still working through it, where have you been the most surprised where you were like, this is mind-altering, life-shattering, changes the trajectory of some of the things that you see or maybe you hold? Wow. I honestly think that that chapter, chapter one, was kind of the the chapter that truly blew my mind. First of all, that we could go back that far. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we could go back that far to 1687 is when when Fortune was born, um, is because her mother was white, because her mother was an Irish indentured servant, Mm -hmm. actually an Ulster Irish, so she was actually Scottish indentured servant. And so um, that's the privilege of whiteness. So I, I was blown away by the reality that in my, underneath my black skin, I had the privilege of whiteness mm. because one of my lines goes back to a white woman. The second thing that um, blew my mind was the second chapter, actually, um, Henry, Henry Lawrence and Harriet Lawrence. So looking at that part of the family, they always, that was the part of the family that always said we, we're, you know, part Native American, but they actually never said it. They, unlike others, they didn't actually, you know, and speak about that because yeah. they didn't want to be accused of passing. But the stories were there. And so I tried to trace those stories. And what I found was that there is an absolute obliteration of the stories there through, um, primarily through the, the, the systems of identity that were constructed by the colonizer, by England. Um, what makes someone Indian? That had a whole different, there was a whole different system in place that was constructed by native native tribes and nations than what is in place now, which was constructed by the US government. And the reason why the US government constructed the construct it had is because it wanted to breed native people out of America. Mm-hmm. It wanted native people to disappear. And yeah. that is exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, when I looked back at the Cherokee um, Dawes rolls uh, from 1890, the last Dawes rolls, I was blown away to see that the majority of the people on the Dawes rolls were like 132nd Cherokee, mm-hmm. 118th Cherokee. And that was then. So what do you think they are now? Yet they are Cherokee because they can trace their people to the Dawes rolls. Yeah. Well, we can't do that because in our family and our family's story, they did not walk the trail. They ran up into the hills and they hid. Um, and yeah. and the, the stories have been obscured. And so I I think what I what I realized is that identity itself has been mangled and twisted and covered over. And it's one of the reasons why our nation um, has really kind of given up the project of trying to figure out who we are. And we're so future oriented. We're so future focused. And it's all about, well, get your stuff now, but we're getting stuff in a state that's unanchored. It's not tethered to, to, to actual truth, to land to people, to stories that actually happened. Instead, it's all about dreaming forward, but in an untethered state, which which becomes mostly about domination. In order to succeed, then you have to dominate the other. Yeah. That has become our story as a nation. Yeah, yeah you say that later on in the book, maybe like 160, 170. I remember highlighting that anyway. Um, yeah, so there, I'm going to skip around a bit because I don't have you for as long as I would love to have you. So um, there, there is a chapter called Sharon and in there you're talking about education and inequality. Um, And the reason I I don't, so I constantly try to convince my kid that it is extremely important um, to know history. Um, And I also try to ride the line of there is more history when it comes to the church, when it comes to Virginia, when it comes to the school you sit in, my son. Like there is more history than just what is in those stupid books because I am aware how much power Texas has and what the heck is in those books because I grew up in Texas. Um, The same way that California has power over what's in the cars that are in Mm -hmm. New Jersey or whatever. You say in here, education inequity is violence. One might argue that it is an act of warfare against the flourishing of fellow citizens. Yes. How so? Because I... I like it. I'd like you to talk to my son as well. We don't need to make it that general, but 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 how so? And and I will say the stories about it, it appears that Sharon in the stories 
is extremely good student. And so they're like, oh, well, we need to get you out of class. This can't be, we can't, we can't have you educated. You know better than that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So that's right. how is it an act of violence and, and possibly how is it still, if, if you feel like it is still? Oh, it's very much. So um, education is really at the heart of, or has become at the heart in the 20th century of the, the struggle for racial equality with the passage of Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, it was that whole separate but equal thing, right? So what you saw in those old time pictures were the one room schoolhouse for the black children and this massive complex for white children. Well, that was in the South, but in the North, you had a very similar situation. And my mom's story, Sharon, um, I think it's chapter seven, no, chapter six, um, her story really illustrates this. She was in Philadelphia, it's a Northern city, but she had de facto segregation, which is what we have today. In fact, schools today have, are, are more segregated than they were back in 1953 before passage of the Brown versus Board of Education. Um, this would be through gentrification ruling. and other, and other socio-political things, redlining. And, and, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're yes, definitely talking redlining. my language as a banker now. Yeah, definitely. hundred yeah, percent. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So, and redlining was outlawed and we get into that actually in the last Except chapter. Except for we did it a couple the, years ago in Chicago, maybe, maybe a hello. year ago, the, the lady just won a court case. What is the name? Yeah. You, you know what I'm referencing. Yeah. yeah. I, well, no, it's happening all the time. And in 2014, um, there were banks that were brought up on charges of redlining mm-hmm. in New Jersey, right? So this is New Jersey, like yeah. right next to New York city, by the way, like right there. So what we, what we have is we have a situation where the, the structures themselves have created de facto segregation, not de jour, as the, which was what Brown versus the Board of Education was about, as in like intentional, but de facto as in, oh, it, it's just happening. But it's happening because of gentrification and the pushing out of people who have lived there for, for generations. So my mom lived in South Philadelphia. She went to a black school. There was a white school two blocks away that she actually should have been able to go to, but they didn't let her go. They let her next door neighbor who was white go to that school, but she couldn't go. Mm -hmm. Um, Somehow he was in the district and she was outside. So one day she's sitting, um, she's sitting in the principal's office while running an errand for the teacher being pulled out of class because she was such a good student. She got pulled out of class to run an errand. And she sits, she sees a box of, of books sitting next to her and she starts to thumb through these books and they are raggedy, missing pages, missing covers. And this, but she sees the, the, the stamp in it that says that they're from the white school two blocks down. So those books got passed down like, like 10 years later to the, to the black students mm-hmm. that they teaches a lesson. You are not worthy of of new books. You're not worthy of the latest information. We are not preparing you to lead. We're preparing you to go to jail. We're preparing you to do service jobs that are going to help us actually flourish us, meaning white people flourish. So today we have the tracking system that does exactly that within multi-ethnic um, uh, school districts or a, a single school that has lots of different ethnicities. If you go to the vote tech area, you're going to see mostly people of color. If you go to the general, general math area, you're going to see mostly people of color. Why? Because general math is not preparing you to go to college. Right. That's preparing you for service industry jobs. If you go to college bound, it's going to be mostly white folk. And if you go to honors and AP, almost all white folk. And some Asian folk too, because they also are are going down that track. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast conversation, (laughs) (laughs) but it has, that has to do, that has to do with economics. And when Asian people come to America, generally speaking, especially East Asian, um, they're, they're coming with means. So they're not poor. They're not having to struggle. Um, and, and so therefore, you know, education is, they're able to, to pay their way into the best schools, X, Y, Z. So, the education system today, I had a conversation with a board of education director in Los Angeles, and she explained um, in this conversation that the best teachers are funneled into um, rich areas, which tend to be more white. Yeah. You have emergency credential teachers that are funneled into black areas, poorer areas. So, What, what do you mean by, emergency by, credentialed? Like, hey, I have a college um, degree in, and you need a teacher, substitu- I've got you. Substitute teachers. Okay. Substitute teachers are funneled 
year round, substitute teachers are funneled into areas that are poorer. So no, have, no consistency, no relationship, no mentorship, no leadership, uh, no training. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Like no, no mm. college education for education, no graduate degrees, which are in the white areas. Mm-hmm. So do you tell me and no books, mm. no books. They don't get books. My mom at least got a 10 year old book today. They're not even getting books. Mm. Just the Chromebooks. So you tell me, would you end up, would you be able to go and get your college education if you had a substitute teacher year round mm. and no books? Mm. And on top of that, you're poor. So your parents may not even have the money to give you breakfast in the morning. So you spend the first half of the day, unless you are fortunate enough to get a breakfast in the morning at, at school, you spend the first half of the day being hungry. So you can't concentrate. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, stuff is happening at home that you have to worry about. This, this, this is the inequity that currently exists in our system. Do you remember like last year I had all those weird ad breaks, like it would just randomly be something? We're not doing that. Instead, I thought I'd do this. I need your help if you're able to. Head on over to the website for the show. There are two things that you can do. One is you head over to the website, you click the Patreon button or support button, I forget what I call it. And you jump in there. Those people help make the show a thing so that you can listen to it right now. Two, the easier one, you could just leave a rating and a review on the podcast app of choice that you currently use. Either one of those is fine. But I would love it if you would do either one, specifically the rating and reviewing. It's an exponential thing that the algorithms pick it up. And that's just math. It's just compounding on top of itself. Anyway, all that to say, that was it. That was the ad break. And now we're going to get back into it. Darkness is the forecast I'm waiting for the dawn I'm still waiting for the dawn Don't hide your face I need to know you're here Yeah, we're just even here in Virginia. Um, Governor Yunkin, or Governor-elect Yunkin, um, ran on a, on a propaganda of critical race theory in the schools, which is funny because it's not even oh taught in gosh, schools. It's not. Um, and oh. I won't even try to speak to critical race theory. I just, because I don't know enough, but um, I know that it's not taught to my children in schools. I also know that it is a, a it, it, I, I talked about this with my brother. It actually makes sense. Like it makes sense regardless of the country. Rome makes rules for Rome to work. Babylon makes rules for Babylon to work. Pharaoh makes rules for Pharaoh to prosper. That's just the way yeah. civilizations are done. I make the That's rules the to way benefit me. Are done. Yeah. I, even in my house, I make the rules to benefit me. You are 12 years old, <laughs> mow the grass. And I'm gonna watch you do it while I drink hot coffee. You know, like <laughs> it, it, that's that's an overgeneralization, but that's mm-hmm. just ridiculous. But I want there's like a war, they'll say there's like a war on education or a war on our kids' minds or whatever. Um, and I, I use that word intentionally because later on you say, in a war there are no humans, only allies and enemies. And so the question yeah. I have is, is the goal to rehumanize or is the goal to all be allies? Because obviously enemies is not the goal. <laughs> so Yeah, that's a that's a really profound question. I would say that the goal is to rehumanize everyone mm-hmm. so that everyone gets to be fully and simply human. Mm. Everyone gets to live fully into the image of God that is within them. Mm. And everyone must bow to the reality that they are not God. They are made in the likeness of God, but they are not God. Mm. And I think that people of color, um, basically everybody who ain't a white man in America, has had laws that have been crafted to basically keep them in their place so that white men can flourish. Mm-hmm. And and that's the thing, you know, critical, this is what critical race theory says. I know you don't want to get into it fully, but look. Well, I'm just ignorant but, of it. And so I don't want to speak poorly. <laughs> like well, I refuse to you. talk to you until I finished your book. Like I won't talk to a person unless I've read the text because I find that disrespectful. So I really appreciate that, by the way, because a lot of people are kind of disrespectful. It's but. easy to fake it, but it's hard to ask real questions if you didn't actually yeah. read it. So Yeah. Well, what I found when I did the research for my book was that I mean, these laws and these policies, actually, there were laws and policies that shaped the course of my ancestors' lives. That is the theory of critical race theory. That, that's I, And I didn't set out to prove critical race theory. That was not, I didn't even know what it was until a couple of years ago, which it's is just ironic. the way laws work. I never work. read anything about it. It's just the way it works. Yeah. Laws create, create systems. 
laws create a flow of life. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to solve problems on the ground, perceive problems on the ground or real ones, and create a flow of life. Now, unfortunately, because of who made those laws in the very beginning, from 1662 all the way to 1971, I believe, or 67 was when Loving Loving versus Virginia happened. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the, the last. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the last overturnings of those first race laws happened in, mm-hmm. in with the Loving versus Virginia um, ruling because it was the reversal of the 1662 law. Yeah. So from 1662 all the way to 19, whatever it was, I think it was 67, actually, there was this, the, the Virginia, at least in definitely the nation was living under the, the oppression of these laws and black bodies then had to live around and twist themselves to fit into the boxes and the streams of life that were carved for them. That's the theory. And it's not theory for anybody who lived it. It's reality. And what I found is that that was exactly the reality for my own family and in education and housing and in jobs. One thing that also blew my mind, really literally like, like mind blown in, in Charleston, South Carolina and in the state of South Carolina, after the civil war, they passed laws um, after the fall of Reconstruction or the end of Reconstruction. They passed laws that outlawed um, people of African descent from working in any industry that was not um, the fields or domestic service. They could not. You, if you had the brain of a scientist, you had to be a maid or a field worker mm. in South Carolina mm. because of the law. So you wonder why people streamed north in the great migration. They were getting away from those laws, but that also changed the course of life because yeah. that disconnected us again from our yeah. families. Yeah. I have a whole, a whole like DNA set of family down in South Carolina and also Virginia that I've never met and will likely never know yeah. because of the great migration, because terror and laws caused our families to figure out how to survive and survival meant disconnection from family. Yeah. Well, not only that, but um, treating people in that way robs everyone. I say this often um, to people that live around me because I live um, there. I mean, my neighbors are African-American. My other neighbors on the other, like my neighbors across the street are Asian American. Like I live in a place that is very diverse, though the school's not all that diverse. I'm not sure how to reconcile that because I don't know where everybody's kids go to school, though their kids won. So that's not fair. Um, I always tell people, the kids around me, I need them all to be well-educated because I don't plan on not living here and I live here. And I I will need you to not, I I will need you to know what the heck is happening when you become an adult. And so it makes me wonder, like, we've wrought, like how much knowledge or progression of just technology and science and faith and humanities have we robbed ourselves of out of half of a millennia of just saying, you're not allowed to be smart. Um, You're not allowed to contribute. Um, that's just, yes. it's just anyway, it's kind of economically stupid, isn't it? I mean, think about that. <laughs> it really is kind of economically stupid. What we've yeah. done is we have suppressed the earning power and the buying power of America by pushing like two thirds of its, of its people, not only people of color, but also poor white people yeah. into an economic status where they don't have enough to buy what they need Yeah, to get what they need to get done. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have time for three more questions? I think three. Maybe sure. two. No, no we we'll just, <laughs> we we'll just, I, well, I had another one and I've lost it now and maybe it'll come back to me. Oh no, I do remember a question. So the first question is, so I am a white man. Um, mm-hmm. That, that happens. It's on the I website. Yeah. People can do it. <laughs> um, I don't think that our nation or really people for that matter have been trained in a way to deal with the trauma. And so to rehumanize people, to remember people, will feel painful and probably painful yes. for everyone. You talk about in the book a bit that, um, you know, not every, like I think you say in the book, like white people, when there's trauma, they tend to come together as community, which is the inverse of what happens for people that aren't white. They, they fragment and, and disenfranchise and, and go off and do things on their own, um, which isn't good for humans. We're not good to be on our own. They talk about that in Genesis, actually. It's not, it's not um, so, uh, yeah. what, where should, how do people begin to prepare themselves to face that trauma. And I say prepare to face that trauma because I am very hopeful that my kids will be much better at this than you or I am. And then my grandfathers were. And so the trauma is coming. Hold on. Hold on one second. Sure. No need. No need. No need. 
Down. Down. Good girl. Good girl. Down. Poor dog. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the trauma is coming. I, 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 I hopefully find it. I, I'm hopeful that it is inevitable. So how do we begin to prepare for that? I think that what we have to do is we have to, we have to build up our resilience of capacity. And a lot of it has to do with making sure that we are not only remembering in our minds, but also remembering our bodies. Our bodies hold that trauma. Um, there are several really great books about this. My Grandmother's Hands is one that has been really um, a big one for me. And then also The Body Keeps the Score mm -hmm. is another, another book that's, that came out recently. But these books have been instrumental for me in the last one year, um, helping me to understand that my body really does hold the stories. It holds it in the tension in my back. It holds it in some ailments that are coming because the stress has actually created ailments in my body because it's I'm not moving that energy through. And for people of African descent and people, people of color in general, native people, um, new immigrants, especially with all the trauma that has happened over the last several years mm. under the last administration, um, there is all kind. the stories are being held in our bodies if we are not working it out. Mm. And um, for people of, of European descent, I think that I would I would move more to the language of moral injury than use trauma. There is a certain trauma that actually in my grandmother's hands that um, Rezma Menachem, the author of that book, talks about um, white-bodied pain, right? So people who are white-bodied and the the trauma of encounter of of the of the evil that has been done on your behalf, right? Mm. Um, there is something to be said for that. I would recommend you read that book. Mm. That book really does have, I think, um, answers for people who are white bodied um, as you are engaging in these, in the stories and seeing for maybe for the first time what actually happened on your behalf. Um, there is something dehumanizing about encountering evil. Um, when we encounter evil, something of the image of God in us gets twisted, gets crushed, gets, gets put, suppressed. And it is the work then, our work is actually to blow life back into the image of God within us, that within us that actually is able to breathe and flourish and, uh, and, and believe and hope and dream and, and partner with God in the stewardship of the world. Um, so for people who are white bodied, it's really gonna be um, a question of going back and looking into your family stories and forgiving your ancestors and allowing yourselves to be forgiven mm. for inaction now. Mm. I think that mostly what people are trying to escape and trying and not looking into the stories is the shame but shame tells a lie. Shame tells the lie that you are the worst thing you've ever done. I don't say that. You are not. You are not the worst thing you've ever done. And you are not the worst thing your ancestors have ever done. Hmm. Instead, there are wrongs that actually happened and actually did change the course of life for whole people groups. What we need to do now is simply fix it. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a difference between shame and guilt. Shame tells you you are the worst thing you've ever done. Guilt says, okay, you did something. Now make it right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Now make it right. Last two questions. So what do you feel like as a congregate of a faith body? I don't really care even what the faith body is. Um, should be some things that people in the pew should be talking about that pastors, ministers should be listening to. And if we don't begin to speak about these things, Church as we know it is is a lost cause, that it will become a nationwide, this is going to sound bad. Like my, my fear for the church is that somehow we're all ostracized in the same way the Amish are. Like, look at those people over there. Uh, they used to be, oh. they used to do things. You know what I mean? And I don't say that poorly against the Amish. I have some Amish friends. You know what I mean? Um, but <laughs> what do you feel like we should be speaking about in our church? And I, I use it as a, as a play on words again of the name of the show. Yeah, I understand. I, I think that, if the last 500 years were about the ref reformation of the church, mm -hmm. 
then the next 500 years, starting now, has to be about the decolonization mm. of the church. Meaning that this brown faith, this faith that rises from Afro-Asian people, um, literally Africa is all over the Bible, and so are parts of Asia, all over the Bible. There's only one person in the entire Bible that has an, a speaking role who is actually from Europe, and that's Pilate. <laughs> Sorry, I just got to say it. It's true. That's, no, that's I, the I, only This is not news to European. me. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, well, I mean, I was kind of blown away when I thought about that because think of, think of where the, or, the power to determine orthodoxy lies in mm. the church. Yeah. It's in Europe. It's in the halls of, of empire. That's who has determined what this text means, mm. who this person of Jesus is. And it's been whiteified, as I like to say. It's been Europeanized, but it didn't come from there. So I think I think what we're realizing now, what we are seeing as the church is the church is declining and decline everywhere, except interestingly, in communities of color, mm. in oppressed communities around the world. That is where the church is growing. The church is now located principally in the southern hemisphere, mm. not in the north and not in the west. And why is that? I think it's because when we pick up that text, it's the same reason that the second great awakening was actually triggered by the black church, the creation of the black church. It's because when we pick up that text, we see ourselves. Mm. We see a brown people oppressed by empire, Repeatedly. colonized and enslaved, exactly, serially enslaved and struggling to flourish struggling to understand its relationship to the world and God. That is what that text is about. Mm. But it is not how it's taught at all. It's mm. not taught like that in white churches pretty much anywhere. Why? Because it's not the social location that the reader is coming from. So what does it take? It's going to take the decolonization of our read of the text. It's going to take um, churches of European descent coming together with churches and communities of color and reading that text together mm. so that they can begin to understand things they haven't seen things they haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, matter of fact, Barrett, if you're listening, let's do that. Um, there's a, there's a nice church across the street that would, yeah, I would love that. There you um, go. Yeah. Uh, Barrett happens to be my pastor. I have no idea if he's listening. Probably isn't. It's okay though. <laughs> um, so when you, uh, Lisa, try to wrap words around whatever God is, whatever the divine is, what do you, what's what is that? God is love. God is love, mm. and and I've really come to understand it. Literally, is all about love. That call of our lives the purpose of our lives the purpose of our lives is to be deeply and radically connected to all things including god mm. god each other the rest of creation the systems that govern us that's the goal of life that's what god cared about when god looked around this is from my previous book the very good gospel mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When God looked around at the end of the sixth day and said, this is very good. What God was talking about was not saying there was a really good walrus that God just made, you know, <laughs> or a great cloud over there. But no, what God was saying was the goodness existed between things, mm. not inside the things. So the relationships between things were very good. And it's the relationships between things that were broken in the fall mm. that all fell down when we grabbed at peace in our own way at the expense of the peace of all else. Mm. So the goal, the goal is to be reconnected and the most radical connection we can have is love. And, and isn't it John who says God is love. Mm. Plug the places that people should be doing the things after they listen to this, they should they should they should engage in the in the work that you're doing or partner in the work that you're doing. Probably actually, yeah, partner in the work that Lisa's doing. Thank Where you. would you That's point really people great. to? Well, I would say definitely check out our website and sign up for the newsletter. Um, and take a check out my website at lisasharonharper.com. Sign up for the newsletter. 
read the books. Um, but you know, the very good gospel came out in 2016. I still highly recommend that, but definitely pre-order fortune. Um, <laughs> fortune's coming out February 8th. Fortune is going to tell you 10 generations of my family story as a window into American history. And then point, um, in the last three chapters, essays on how to repair it all. Yeah. Um, and the work that we do is consulting. We also have an Institute. So if you want to go deeper on any of these concepts on race and gender, um, and, and healing the world, then, then log on to our Institute and take some of our downloadable courses. Yeah, it's definitely. really, um, it's a great, hour. and also of course, our podcast, Freedom Road Podcast. You can <laughs> check us out once a month. Yeah. Anywhere uh, you get your good pod- podcasts. It is once a month then. Okay. I looked at it. I'm like, this seems to be infrequent. Once a month seems to be a lot more manageable <laughs> than weekly. Um, I can tell you that right now. Um, anyway, thank you for the extra time. I know we went over, I've genuinely enjoyed speaking to you and babe as well. Why not? Um, yeah. Welcome to the show, babe. But, um, thank you again, Lisa, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Seth. Really great to meet you. And this was an awesome conversation. Thank you. We want out, but we're still stuck hanging on, but the thread is so thin. We're gonna get out of this empty pit. Now, I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet, and I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now for you... I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon. Love will keep the lamp lit just a bit.